Um, we've had a load of technical issues this morning. Um, things have been forgotten. People have been ill. Alan was supposed to be leading worship this morning. Um, a number of little things that have uh, really kind of upset the apple cart, and we've just managed to put things together. So I believe, because of that, that there's something significant in this message that I'm going to bring. All right? So, let's begin. That was good, that, wasn't it? Do it again. You ready? Awesome. A grandmother was making tea in the kitchen and needing a can of tomato soup. Her house was old and she still had a, a pantry where she kept cans of food and other non perishables. So she asked her five year old grandson to go into this pantry which was just off the kitchen and, and under the stairs, and get a can of soup for her. But the light in the pantry was out, and he didn't really want to go. It's dark in there, and I'm scared, he said. She asked again, and he repeated his no, a, a bit more firmly this time, but, but with growing fear. Now, being a good Christian woman, she encouraged her grandson. It's okay, darling. Jesus is with you. He'll be in there with you. So the little boy walked hesitantly to the door, and he slowly opened it. And looking, in, looking inside, he decided it really was too dark. And so he closed this old, creaking wooden door. What's wrong with my creek? Anyway, and he started walking away. But as he walked away, a thought hit him. So he ventured back to the pantry, and with a little more confidence, and hearing his grandma's words ringing in his ears, he, he peeked back inside. In fact, he took a step inside, and then he called out into the blackness, Jesus, if you're in there, would you get me a can of soup? <laughs> so let's talk about Halloween. Let's talk about Halloween. Did you know, did you know that Halloween was actually celebrated hundreds of years before the birth of Christ? Did you know that? Yeah. And that actually, it's the Celtic nations, they, they observed a festival they called, and you, you pronounce it Samhain, or it's, it's spelled S-A-M-H-I-H-A-I-N, pronounced Samhain. And that eventually became what we know as October 31st. But unlike today's Halloween, the Celts didn't celebrate it as a holiday. You see, the Celtic New Year began on what we now know as the 1st of November. The, whole, the autumn harvest had come to a close. The winter was just around the corner. And at this time of the year, the Celts knew that the power of the sun was fading. And for the next several months, darkness would prevail. And for the Celts, this impending darkness was a scary time. Nature became cold and dark. And in their eyes, in the coldest and the darkest of nights, lifeless. 
But there was something even scarier for them than simply wondering whether there was going to be enough food to survive. For the Celts, there was something like an invisible curtain that separated the living from the dead. And they believed that at this time of year, that curtain was at its thinnest. And on the evening of October 31st, it was their belief that evil spirits and souls of the dead would pass through this barrier and enter the world of the living. And when they crossed over, they would torment the living. Crops were destroyed. Babies were stolen and farm animals were killed. And so to appease these dead spirits, various sacrifices, which could have included human sacrifices in some cases, were performed. A portion of what little food they had was left out for the spirits. And they hoped that this treat would help them avoid a trick. See, when you boil it down to its very simplest component, you find something really quite simple about this. Halloween came about because people are afraid of the dark. We generally don't like Darkness. Darkness, literal and metaphorical, is a time when life becomes uncertain and even scary. But you know what? Here's the immensely encouraging bit. Knowing that darkness has this effect on people, God has, through his word, the Bible that you're holding in your hands, <laughs> thank you, Stu, or in your Bible apps, He has made repeated promises. The book of Isaiah in that book that you're holding tells us that the reason the Messiah was being sent was to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. In the Gospel of Matthew, quoting Isaiah, he tells us that when Jesus came, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who live in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. Jesus declared himself, he declared this, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. And he also said this, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world. So that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. Aren't they some amazing promises? Just take those in now. Soak them up. Some time ago, there was an atheist uh, from the US who gained a bit of fame by trying to sell his soul on eBay. Did anybody anybody come across this story? I vaguely heard about it and came across it again as I was doing research for this. What was cool about it was that the churches heard about it and they started to invite him into their meetings to to tell them, why are you, to ask ask him, why are you an atheist and tell us why, what what value does it hold for you, why are you doing this? Now I don't know ultimately whether he found faith and whether he became a Christian, but after one such visit to a church, he's quoted as saying this, at one church I visited, 
some people were asked to write down how they felt before and after becoming Christians. They said things like dark and light, lonely and befriended, which got me wondering, is being down or lonely or desperate a prerequisite to finding God? Do these people think that others who have not yet found God are lost, scared or miserable? Do I have to go through some sort of trauma or crisis before finding ultimate meaning? Now, what he didn't understand was that many people who become Christians do so because they've actually seen how dark and lonely life can get. People become Christians because they've recognized sin and darkness in themselves. And they see the light of Christ as the only way out. Christ washing away the sin and darkness. Folks can't successfully have a satisfying relationship with God when lives are weighed down with guilt and shame. The stain of our past lives will always prevent us from having a close relationship with Jesus. Always. Now on our own, we're unable to remove sin from our lives. But the amazing thing is, God did it for us. That deserves an amen, doesn't it? He came down in the form of a man and paid the price for everything we've ever done wrong. He died on a cross, but it didn't stop there. He rose from the dead and he gave us life and he gave us light in our lives. As John 1.4 tells us, the word, that's Jesus, gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. Now, I'd like us to read a story from Acts 26. And if you can remember, I spoke on this passage just a few weeks ago. So I think God is really wanting to, to nail something on this. And actually, talking about wanting to nail something, this conversion story of Paul, whom we were about to, to talk about, is actually recorded three times in the book of Acts. Did you know that? Same story, three times in the book of Acts. Now, I believe that there is nothing at all in Scripture that, isn't there, that is there by accident. So we've got to ask the question then. Is there a reason why God tells this story three times? Now, I think that maybe why this story is told in Acts 26 again and again is because God wants us to see the significance of this one statement. Paul was told he was being sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness from their sins and be given a place among God's people who were set apart by faith in me. In Acts chapter 9, we're given the first description of this confrontation between Jesus and Paul. In the telling of this story, we find that God literally plunged Paul into darkness. I'm going to read it for you. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now the men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. 
Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. For three days, Paul waited in Damascus, blind, fearful, praying for all he was worth. He knew that he'd sinned against Messiah and that his people had waited for for generations. And he was afraid of punishment. He was afraid even for his very salvation. And then a man named Ananias, sent by Jesus, came to him. And when Ananias laid his hands on Paul, it says that something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see. Then Ananias reinforced the commission that Jesus had given three days earlier when he told Paul all this. Ananias said strongly, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by the calling on the name of the Lord. Paul wrote later in his life to the Christians at Philippi, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life then on the day of Christ's return. I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. Paul was telling the guys in Philippi that it was their job as Christians to hold firmly to the word of life. And of course, Jesus has already told us that. He said, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So how do we do that? How do we let our light shine? How do we hold firmly to the word of life, to people still in darkness? And I think if you study Acts 26, and obviously I encourage you to do that for yourself, I think you get some intriguing answers. Firstly this, God has given us a job to do. You and me who believe. He's given us a job to do. And he's not going to do that job for us. It's ours to do. It depends upon us, each and every one of us, to help others understand what they're missing when they're living a life without Jesus. I think that's just worth repeating. It depends on us to help others understand what they're missing out on a life without Jesus. See, here's an interesting thought. Paul was not saved on the road to Damascus. That's tickling some theological armpit there, I feel. (laughs) He was not saved on the road to Damascus. He was saved in Damascus. When Ananias did his job and obeyed Jesus when he went to talk to Paul 
Acts 22 verse 16 tells us up to that point that Paul's sins had not yet been washed away. Ananias said, get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. Paul's salvation then could be said to hinge on Ananias doing what God had asked him to do. It's a profound thought, I think. God has sent Ananias to Paul to lift him out of his blindness. So God then sends you and me to others to help them out of their blindness, to help guide them out of darkness. That's beautiful. What a responsibility. But what an amazing, an amazing thing to have on your shoulders. It doesn't burden me that. In fact, it gives me purpose. My second point is that when we talk to people about Jesus, God doesn't expect us to do it all by ourselves. This is the cool thing. Jesus is already working behind the scenes to change their hearts. Jesus had already worked on Paul's heart long before Ananias showed up. In the same way, Jesus tells us that one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of its sin. Let's not be scared of that world's sin. Let's not change it to something else. Sin is sin is sin. Let's get comfortable with with, with acknowledging that it exists and the word means something quite deep and powerful. So let's not be scared of the word sin. Because as we pray, and prayer should be at the heart of all we do, it should be at the start and at the heart of all we do, then when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, we can be confident that God is working behind the scenes to help us do all that he's asked us to do. Thirdly, and this should emphasize the word that I gave at the beginning of the year, about this being a year of transformation and testimony, do you remember? We need to realize the importance of telling our story to others. You and me, we need to tell people why we are Christians. We need to tell them why it is so important about Jesus, that what's so important about Jesus, that we're willing to build our lives around him. We build our lives around him, not the other way around. Why do we sacrifice so much of our time to worship and honor him. The story of Paul's conversion, like I said, is recorded three times in Acts. And the first, it's merely a fact of church history. But the two other times, Paul is telling people why his life was changed. He had a life-altering confrontation with Jesus. And he wanted to sh- others to know about it. Your story might begin with why you were baptized into Christ, why you became a Christian in the first place. Or it might even be something that's happened since then that has made God even more real to you. We could have a powerful worship service on a Sunday. The singing is inspirational. The the praying touches our hearts. The preaching might even bring you to your knees in repentance. It might. And the fellowship is outstanding that could all be happening and it's all valuable and it's all amazing but we won't really be successful 
until we're all convicted of the need to help open the eyes of our neighbors, our friends, and our family and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are set apart by faith in Jesus Christ. This is a major part of what God has called us to do. And if we fail in this responsibility, if we fail, a lot of people will spend their lives, their eternal lives, in a very dark and uncertain place. I hope I'm pushing how important it is for us to share our story with others. People's eternal destinations are at stake. The people you love, the people you care about, who don't yet know Jesus, let's not mollycoddle around the edges, but in love, let's tell them our story. God had blinded Paul for those three days as a lesson. God intended this physical blindness to drive home the spiritual blindness that symbolized his life to that point. And the object lesson was so powerful that Paul later wrote, But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. If you don't know the story of Paul, Paul was also known as Saul. And Paul would hold the coats of those who would be followers of Jesus, kill followers of Jesus. Paul himself was probably responsible for hundreds of maimings and beatings and death. He was the worst of them. Yet because of what Christ did, Paul has become a major figure in the New Testament story. Somebody who can teach us so much about who Jesus is. So if he can take the worst of us and make him into one of the best of us, then he certainly can take you and me. And help us tell our story and bring people to faith. Because because of that blindness, for the rest of Paul's life, he understood what what it really means to be brought out of darkness and into light. From the power of Satan to God. And that he had received this amazing forgiveness. And a place in God's family. Wow. So this Halloween, don't close your home. Don't ignore the knocks on your door. Get some sweets and welcome people with a big smile and bright eyes. Take the opportunity to be light in the darkness. Let your story shine. Take opportunities to share your faith over this coming week. Because as people realize that you're Christian, or maybe they're reminded because of the time of year that it is, they'll be, probably begin to ask you questions. So you've got an opportunity to tell people of why you love Jesus Christ and how he has changed your life. And one final thing. Don't be scared of the dark.
Vast armies undead do tread through the night and in hordes march towards hapless victims to frighten. They stumble in step with glass eyes on the prizes, bunched hither, hunched over in monstrous disguises, in sizes not lofty but numbering a throng to unleash on their prey the dreaded. Small faces with traces of mother's eyeliner peer up to the resident candy provider. And there to intone ancient threats learned verbatim, they lisp. Tis their stark ultimatum. Thus region by region such legions take plunder. Does this spectacle spectacle cause you to wonder? Just how did our fair festive forebears conceive of this primeval practice called All Hallows' Eve? The answer, if anyone cares to research, surprises. It rises from Old Mother Church. On the cusp of the customary All Saints' Day, the Christian kinsfolk made mocking display. These children of light, both to tease and deride, don darkness, dulled down as the sinister side. In preposterous pageants and dress diabolic, they hand to the dam just one final frolic. You see, with the light of the dawn on the morrow, the sunrise will swallow such darkness and sorrow. The future is futile for forces of evil, and so they did scorn them in times medieval. But this is the nature of shadow and gloom. In the gleaming of glory, there can be no room. What force is resourced by the echoing black? When the brightness ignites, can the shadow push back? These forces of darkness, if such can be called, are banished by brilliance, by blazing enthralled. So the Bible begins with this four-resolved fight. For a moment the darkness, then let there be light. First grief in the gloom, then joy from the east. First valley of shadow, then mountaintop feast. First wait for Messiah, then long-promised dawn. First desolate Friday, and then Easter morn. The armies of darkness, while doing their worst, can never extinguish this dazzling sunburst. So ridicule rogues if you must play a role, but beware getting lost in that bottomless hole. The triumph is not with the forces of night. It dawned with the one who said, I am the light. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say sorry. We give second chances to anyone. And we also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. We give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we, we love. love.